Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is the New Books and Political Science podcast, and my name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with the author of Building a Business of Politics, The Rise of Political Consulting and the Transformation of American Democracy. The book is published by Oxford University Press. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation that I had with the author. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I have the chance today to talk to the author is Adam Scheingate. Adam, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have read the book. I can't think of a more timely and interesting book, given all that's going on in the world. Before we get to it, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, my name is Adam Scheingate. I'm an associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. We have, I think, had a couple of others in this this series, and which deal with just such interesting topics of, of real contemporary importance, but also of historical importance. Before we get to some of that interesting history, let's just start with some, you know, some definitions and some real deceptively simple things like, and maybe I can just start by asking you, what is a political consultant? Uh, it's a term that's thrown around a lot without a whole lot of precision. If you were to explain this briefly, what is a political consultant? So first of all, from my perspective, I'm interested in, in people who are paid to provide products and services to political campaigns. So that's what I think of as a political consultant, somebody who's hired um, uh, to work for a campaign. In particular, somebody who uh, perhaps is a principal in or a member of a, of a firm, a political consulting firm that provides those products and services. And so I would distinguish, say, political consultants from lobbyists in the sense that lobbyists are uh, mostly working to um, uh, pursue some policy goal vis-a-vis a member of Congress, although the definitions can get a little bit blurry in the sense that the history of political consulting and certainly currently political consultants sometimes do work, which is related to lobbying in that they're trying to use the tools and techniques of political campaigns to try to persuade the public to prefer one policy over another that would then provide a source of leverage on on lawmakers, what's called outside lobbying. So so political consulting does have a, a fairly broad scope, but for um, the simplest sake um, and in terms of the history, it's thinking about how did we get a profession of people whose job it is to work for candidates and campaigns to help them get elected through techniques like polling and media. Right. And, and today, how do political consultants make money? Um, if this is sort of our definition of what they do, what is what is the way in which they actually generate the money? And maybe you can just give us a little sense of the of the size of this field. What are we talking about in terms of um, revenue uh, or, or money on the table? What what is what's the money side of this? Right. So um, uh, I try to estimate how big the industry is, at least in terms of federal campaigns. And so using data from the 2012 federal elections, so the presidential election, congressional elections, the party committees like the House and Senate Democratic and Republican committees, 
the Democratic National Committee, Republican National Committee, and then independent expenditures by super PACs. When you put that all together, I estimate that political consulting firms handled around $3.6 billion. So that's around half or a little over half of the $6 billion that was spent on that campaign. Now, not all of that money goes to political consultants. Um, a lot of that money passes through the hands of consultants um, in the form of purchases of television airtime. So the political consulting firm is hired to handle the media for a campaign. They take all the money and then buy airtime and then collect a fee or a commission um, on the placement of that air, on the placement of that ad as well as the production of that ad. So it's unfortunately impossible to know how much exactly political consultants earn, but research by other folks like Matt Grossman suggests that the standard in the field is, let's say, somewhere between a 10 and 15 percent commission. So um, I'd say we can safely we can safely say that this is a multi-billion dollar business. Um, the most lucrative part of the business is the media part, the, the ability to, to collect fees and commissions on television ads primarily. The other big source of revenue for consultants is fundraising, like direct mail, where similarly they collect a commission on every piece of mail that they send out. And then political consultants also make money by fielding polls and doing research, as well as the growing field of what I guess would be called digital politics. So media that is used using new media uh, or advertising that uses new media, for example, on the Internet, um, email fundraising solicitations, as well as the growing field of data analytics where uh, campaigns are using big data to try to target voters for the purposes of, of mobilizing them to vote, working on the campaign, or, or raising money. Now, now political consultants have, haven't uh, always been such a dominant part of, of campaigning as they are today. Um, who ran campaigns before this profession took form? Right, so that's a big a big focus of the book is to try to understand the rise of the consulting profession and basically how they took control of what, what I call political work, the work of, of conducting campaigns or the work of persuading people to vote for a candidate or to adopt a particular position. So before the rise of this profession, a lot of the political work that was the basis of American elections was handled by what we might think of as party workers, people who worked for the party possibly on a part-time basis uh, in order to help the candidates of their of a particular party win office. So if we think about the political machines of uh, the late 19th, or early 20th century, um, those were the kinds of people that, that did the day-to-day the -day work of politics, mobilizing voters, counting votes, um, uh, conducting elections, actually, in the 19th century. And then what happened over the course of the 20th century is that gradually – the functions that were handled by these party workers was replaced and superseded by a profession of political consulting and a business of political consulting organized in firms that were hired by candidates, parties and the like to provide these modern products and services we think of today uh, or associate today with campaigns like polling and media. Now, now you, you track the, the actual development of, of polling and market research in the commercial sector with the, with the growing role played in politics. And, and in particular, you write about the term publicity and, and how it emerged in the progressive era and also the dual meanings and functions of publicity. So what did publicity mean in the early 20th century for politics? Well, I'd start by saying that 
it's important to realize how the growth of political consulting developed through the application of business methods to politics. So business methods like advertising a product and then taking that and saying, well, how would we advertise a candidate? Or market research to think about, well, what do consumers want or what do consumers buy? And applying those methods like surveys or polls to the electorate, what do voters think or want? In the early 20th century, this begins around the notion of publicity. And publicity had two meanings in, in, the, in the progressive era of the early 20th century that was important for the changes in politics uh, that, we, that, we, that we live with today. So first, publicity meant to publicize something, to make it public. And in the context of the early 20th century, this meant to expose the backroom deals of politics to the light of day or to expose the corruption of corporations to the light of day. That was the meaning of publicity, and that was a big part of the progressive movement that gave rise to politicians like Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson, who made a name for themselves as politicians by um, celebrating uh, or promoting the idea of publicity, that the cures for the for the difficulties of industrialized America was publicity, that if we just knew what happened in politics – or if we just knew what happened in business, the people would make decisions that would correct the abuses of the time, whether those were um, whether that was political corruption or financial corruption. And so as a policy or as a principle, Roosevelt advocated publicity. And that was a politically successful position in terms of uh, the reform movements of that time. But publicity had the second meaning, which is kind of maybe what we associate with the term today, which is simply to publicize something, to, to advertise something, to make something, um, to, um, to, to attract attention for something. That's the secondary meaning of publicity as a kind of orchestrated campaign of persuasion. And people like Teddy Roosevelt, I guess, exploited both meanings of the term. So to take an example of, of his career and his, he, he advocated for um, a new policy of conservation or environmental policy to conserve natural resources. And that hinged on both meanings of publicity. It, it hinged on the first meaning of publicity to publicize the fact that corporations uh, were exploiting public lands in a way that was damaging and contrary to the national interest. And so making it clear to people how the railroad industry or the mining industry were using natural resources um, so that the public would be informed, and therefore vote accordingly in favor of conservation policy. That's the first meaning of publicity. But Roosevelt also used the second meaning of publicity by publicizing his position, by going out and um, using kind of uh, media uh, extravaganzas or helping, uh, getting the help of, of people, uh, publicity experts, as they were called, to get the message through the newspapers about about Roosevelt's positions as, and also his efforts as he traveled through the country. So the kinds of uh, modern-day techniques we think of or associate with the presidency today, going public, advertising their positions, trying to make public appearances at strategic places in order to persuade voters to support the president's agenda, this is the second meaning of publicity that we can track, tra trace back to Roosevelt. But I would just wrap up this part by saying that those, the ambiguity of those things is important to keep in mind that the, 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 are we talking about publicity in, like information or are we talking about publicity like persuasion? And that ambiguity that has been exploited by politicians for 100 years, I think, contributes to some of the frustration and even cynicism that 
that the electorate has today, where we're not ever quite sure if the information we receive from politicians is just the facts or just the selection of information or the selection of facts that they want to use to try to promote a particular point of view. So we might know that half of what they tell us is true, but we just don't know which half. And that's exploiting that ambiguity and publicity that I think is a legacy of the progressive era in our contemporary politics, as well as a a consequence of the growth of a profession whose job it is to persuade and to trim messages in line with the goals of a politician or elected official. Now, Whitaker and Baxter emerge as two of the the, the chief protagonists in your book. Um, What happened in California that made their political impact possible? And and what can we attribute about today's politics, especially right-wing politics, to these two? So Whitaker and Baxter, I think, represent the beginnings of a true business of politics in the sense that they created a, a firm called Campaigns Incorporated in the 1930s in California. That's really the, the first proper standalone political consulting firm. And they had a very successful career for about 20 years in California, managing political campaigns um, for elected officials, uh, but also managing campaigns for ballot initiatives and also working on behalf of business organizations in, in, in California um, against uh, effort, either against particular candidates or against efforts uh, by governors to promote certain kinds of policy issues. So one um, important example of that was that Whitaker and Baxter worked um, for Governor Earl Warren, um, sorry, worked to get Governor Earl Warren elected, but then once Governor Warren was in office, uh, worked against his efforts, worked against Warren's efforts to promote um, public health insurance. In California, so Whitaker and Baxter were hired by the California Medical Association to oppose, uh, to, to lead an opposition to um, an initiative uh, or a, a policy initiative for public health insurance, and they did so by organizing their strategy around an alternative, saying the best way to defeat government health insurance is to promote private, voluntary health insurance. And so, um, working on behalf of the California Medical Association. They promoted the virtues of private health insurance, but they also crafted the, 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 a campaign around the, the supposed dangers of so-called socialized medicine, which if they didn't coin themselves, Whitaker and Baxter were the first to use the, the term socialized medicine as a, as a way to uh, stoke fears about government health insurance and the effects it might have on people's quality of care, but also more generally uh, to stoke fears of uh, government run amok. And um, the same kinds of themes that we saw played out in the struggles over the Affordable Care Act um, uh, in 2010 really echo the same strategies that Whitaker and Baxter devised in the 1940s by basically playing upon people's uh, concerns as well as um, articulating a view that was that was hostile to government. And so uh, what the, the, the innovation, if you will, for Whitaker and Baxter was to figure out a new way to get business in politics, a new way to get business organized in politics so that they could leverage their financial resources, the financial resources of business, in order to either pass or more often block government initiatives that, they, that, that, that business saw could be hostile to their interests. And they did this, again, by... Um, 
cleverly using uh, themes and issues that would um, play upon, I think, an underlying or consistent thread in American in the American political tradition, which is to be skeptical of government and, and government authority, uh, but using that that skepticism and turning it to the interests of business. And in that way, I think they foreshadowed a contemporary feature of conservatism and right-wing politics in the United States, which is to use these financial resources of business to stoke anti-government uh, views among the public. Now, now, as someone who thinks a lot about campaign finance reform, I was particularly intri- uh, intrigued that you attribute the Supreme Court ruling in the 1970s, what we call Buckley versus Vallejo, as responsible for some of the growth of the field of political consulting. How is this the case? So I think it's a combination of, of what the Supreme Court invalidated in the 1970s, as well as what remained uh, in place. So you have an effort by Congress to regulate campaign finance in the, in the wake of the Watergate scandal. And really what, what the campaign finance reform movement tried to accomplish was to tighten up procedures so that uh, it would no longer be the case that uh, slush fund, political slush funds would, would, be, would, would be allowed, right? That they wanted to curb the abuses of Watergate by uh, limiting how much money could be spent in politics, how much money could be raised, and also by requiring a great deal of transparency in exactly where that money came from and exactly where that money went. Now, what the Supreme Court did was invalidate important features of those laws by saying that campaign spending was a form of free speech, so it couldn't be limited. And, of course, later, later Supreme Court decisions have said that um, campaign contributions are also a free, form of free speech. Um, but one thing remained, and that was transparency in how the money should be spent. That's something that um, continues to characterize our political system. And what it means is that candidates can't just buy your vote, right? Candidates can't just spend the money however they want. They actually have to provide very detailed records on where the money goes. <clears throat> and what happened in the 1970s is that the Federal Election Commission put forward a set of rules that tried to say, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to um, get candidates um, to report in a way that can be um, administratively uh, done, fe- you know, administratively feasible, but also achieve the goals of limiting um, unregulated uses of campaign cash. And so what they did is said, look, you have to stipulate exactly what you spend your money on. And here's a list of things that we consider to be uh, allowable expenses, uh, advertising, polling, direct mail, and the like. In other words, all the things that political consultants provide. And they said, furthermore, that things that wouldn't be allowed would be general expenses like election day funds, which in places like Baltimore used to be a common occurrence where political parties would give what were called, it was called walking around money, cash that was distributed to the ward bosses in order to just make sure people got to the polls and did what they needed to do to get the vote out. That became illegal, as did um, and, and also uh, sort of. Uh, transactions to individuals triggered a higher level of scrutiny. So the bottom line, at least as I argue in the book, is that campaign consulting as a result of these changes in our campaign finance system and the regulations of the Federal Election Commission, campaign consulting became the easiest way to spend money legally in the American political system because you had all these candidates who now had to itemize all their expenses 
And it was a lot easier to just hire political consultants to spend the money for advertising or for other purposes um, and therefore stay on the right side of the Federal Election Commission than try to use other other spending sources like so-called walking around money. So that's that was an unintended consequence of campaign finance reform, but one I argue um, had the unwitting effect of giving an incredible boost to the growth of the industry beginning in the 1970s. Yeah, there's so much interesting stuff in the book. The the history is very interesting. Uh, it's, its meaning for our contemporary period is is also really interesting. The Again, the title of the book is Building a Business of Politics, The Rise of Political Consulting and the Transformation of American Democracy, published in 2016 by Oxford University Press. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs>